This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, safe to say, what a man, what a man, when it comes to Warren Buffett. Can I say that? Is that politically correct? I think so. Um, Anyway, it was a big weekend for Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, out with earnings, talking about the company's investments, talking Bitcoin, healthcare, retirement, sort of. Let's go over it all with Vitaly uh, Katzenelson, Chief Investment Officer at Investment Management Associates, on the phone from Denver. Also with us, our own Tara LaChapelle, M&A columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, which is our commentary section of Bloomberg. Vitaly, let me start with you. Uh, we had a slew of news dealing with Berkshire Hathaway. And as typical, uh, Warren Buffett and company uh, commenting on a lot of things. What stood out for you as an investor? You know, what stood out for me was that Warren Buffett is 87, Charlie Munger is 94. And you have these two you know, fairly mature men sitting in, you know, basically on stage in a huge arena and answering questions for six hours without skipping a bit. And that was incredibly impressive. Uh, you mean the stamina? Uh, you just impressed with their stamina? <laughs> well, that's number one. And, and number two, the, uh, you know, when you go to these meetings for as long as I have, it's, you know, you basically 90% of what they say, you know, they've said it before. But the reason I go because it basically grounds you to launch an investment. You know, they, if you if you're in the markets, you know, all day long, they you know they shrink your time horizon and you forget that you know what launch of investing is. And when you go to Berkshire Hathaway meetings, basically it kind of it retrains your brain to think long term the way you know Charlie and Warren do. Right. You talk about Charlie Munger and, uh, yeah. of course, uh, uh, there with Warren Buffett. Let me bring in our Tara LaChapelle because she actually wrote about, you know, looking up at, at stage, right, and seeing Warren Buffett and seeing Charlie Munger, pretty cool stuff. And yet you said somebody was kind of missing or some people were missing. Right. I mean, the big news this year, you know, Buffett hasn't had a large acquisition to really talk about. There really hasn't been a, much activity. The big news was back in January that they elevated Ajit Jain and Greg Abel to vice chairman um, uh, over, overseeing various parts of the conglomerate. And Abel and to some degree Jane are seen as the two successor candidates for Buffett. It's just unusual that they would have this big announcement and not give them greater visibility at this meeting during the Q&A, which is the most watched part of the, the weekend. And I, I just thought that it seemed like they should have been included, especially given that Buffett is now 87 turning 88, Munger just turned 94. And, you know, we don't know what next year is going to bring. And I think to to make the transition smooth enough for shareholders, they should have been included. I think it would help. It would go a long way toward helping shareholders get comfortable with the idea of someone else running the company eventually if they kind of display a united front and share that limelight a little bit, which doesn't seem like Buffett's willing to do right now. Well, talk to us about that, Tara. I mean, because that's kind of interesting. It does seem like that Warren Buffett, and I can understand it, a company you've built, you've been so associated with the company, you are the face of the company. Um, 
you know, that he doesn't seem to want to step back yet. Exactly. And I think it's a bad call. I mean, he he clearly is the capital allocator in chief. He clearly calls the shots. You know, the first question at the meeting was about whether he's semi-retired. And he said he's been semi-retired for decades. But I don't really believe that. I think he is still seen as the boss. And I don't think that's a concern. I think the concern is when he's not there... Are the shareholders going to give his replacement the same leeway they give him? I mean, he he gets a lot because he's Warren Buffett. And, you know, he'll kind of tend to downplay his role in things and say that, you know, they're the first phone call because of the Berkshire name, not because of the Buffett name. But that's not quite true. I mean, I don't think that Greg Abel will be able to get necessarily the same great terms and deals going forward just because he's calling from Berkshire. I think having Buffett there means a lot. Yeah, and there's something to be said that, you know, here you can be, if you look at um, Abel and Jane as, as kind of apprentices, mm-hmm. <laughs> that the more that they are seen kind of side by side with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, that it might go a long way in terms of uh, the global perspective. Vitaly, does it bother you that um, Aji Jane or Greg Abel, that they weren't up there? Not at all. Uh, and uh, if you think about Buffett, he does everything in small steps when it comes to kind of his succession. And he, you know, he brought Ted and Todd, you know, a few years ago, and gradually he gave him more and more money, and now they run tens of billions of dollars. And I think this year was a year of transition where he delegated a lot more of the Berkshire responsibility to, uh, you know, Jane and Greg Abel. But I think the way he does it, he praises them in annual letters, and he praises them every time he talks about them. So I think they kind of get this. Uh, you know, they, he uh, elevated him so much already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that may, maybe next year he'll, you know, he'll do. You know, maybe he'll next year or the following year he'll put him on stage. But he usually does things slowly, especially when it. You know, and I think, and I'll be honest, I think he enjoys the spotlight so much that it's very difficult to give it up. But, and, I, <laughs> but I think Terry, you make a good point. Like you think, you know, God forbid we go through another financial crisis. The mm-hmm. terms that. Warren Buffett got to help, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of investments in Goldman and so on and so forth, they were, they made for great investments. I mean, same with Kraft Heinz and, and not even in periods of turmoil, which tend to be, you know, great times for them to do deals, but just the simple fact of, you know, next year's meeting, like, like you said, you know, Buffett likes to do this in small steps, but at 87, how many more small steps can he make? I think at some point he needs to, he needs to introduce, really introduce these guys to shareholders and make them comfortable with the idea because, you know, we're looking at a company with with over $100 billion of cash in the balance sheet. Everyone's very happy to sit back and let Buffett figure out what to do with that. I'm not sure they'll sit back as easily when the next guy is running the show. And safe to say that some of these newer investments, including maybe Apple, I'd love to know kind of the negotiations who brought that up first because it wasn't necessarily, you know, people would often talk about Warren Buffett, that it wasn't the technology, you know, he didn't go for necessarily newer technology investments and yet, you know, he's definitely upped his ante. Um, Vitaly, uh, uh, you know, anything else that you thought was was kind of interesting? Just got got about ten seconds here. Well, I think it was interesting that he sold IBM and he increased his position in Apple because yeah. you know he looks at Apple as a, as a consumer company, as a brand. Right. So yeah, that it, was very interesting too. Yeah, good stuff. Vitaly uh, Katzen Nelson, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Investment Management Associates, on the phone from Denver. Tara Chappelle. Our M&A columnist with Bloomberg Opinion joining us in our New York studio. Shares of Berkshire Hathaway, by the way, up about 1.2%. This is Bloomberg Radio. Put on your high heels, This may not be a high-heeled sneaker, but it's definitely a sneaker, uh, and it's uh, done with 
a company that's best known for tires. Perfect together? Well, who knew? Here to talk about uh, Michelin. 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 <laughs> Sorry. I was thinking about uh, Michelin lately. Michelin's campaign with fans is Scott Clark. He's chairman and president of Michelin North America, uh, based in Greenville, South Carolina, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Sorry, I was thinking about restaurants and dining recently. <laughs> well, that's, that's us, too. That's Michelin. Same Michelin. <laughs> it is, right? Um, tell us about what you guys are doing, this collaboration with Vance, because you brought, and I just put them out on Twitter, some pretty cool sneakers that you guys have put together. Yeah, the genesis of this really is uh, because of the fact that, you know, the number one killer of teens remains traffic fatalities. And we recently did some research that showed that about 40% of teens are driving in vehicles that have a tire-related issue. And we know statistically from the U.S. government of the 2.2 million accidents that happen every year, about 300,000 of those involve teens with tire-related issues. So, and that's something we can do about. It's something we can uh, we know a lot about, and, yeah. and we can help address. And uh, so, we actually started this journey about three and a half years ago with something called Beyond the Driving Test. We discovered it was kind of surprising that hardly any of the states had anything in their driver education and training materials about the basics of tire maintenance or tire care. And so over the last three years, we um, have gotten all 50 states to basically integrate into their driver training something about um, tire maintenance. And this is the, ne- the, the next step for us is to say, now, now how do we engage these, these teenagers? And we thought a great way to do it, teenagers are really into sneakers. We know that they spend about as much money on sneakers as they spend <laughs> on gaming and, and, and phones <laughs> and so forth. So let's use a partnership with Vans as a way to engage teenagers. And what we're asking them to do with this, what we call street tread contest, uh, hashtag street tread contest over the summer to um, – send us photos of them doing a couple of the very basic things in tire maintenance, checking their tre- their, their tread depth right. and tre- checking their air pressure. And that's really what this is all about. Well, it's a cool pair of sneakers, too, and it's working in certainly your company colors and logos. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the Michelin is- Man is very prominent. And, uh, <laughs> we love the Michelin Man. <laughs> I'll have to tell you, and it's funny, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about um, – my dad was the one who kind of said, you guys all have to learn how to you know, check your oil yep. and check your tires. And that's the kind of thing. And it's kind of gotten, I don't know what's happened. It's kind of fallen to the wayside. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, so many other distractions and devices for teenagers today that uh, the very basics of checking your tread depth with a penny, you know, we, we, it's a very simple thing. It doesn't take much time. Checking your air pressure, same thing. And yet it's so important to driver safety. You know, people lose sight of the fact that in a, in a car, it's your brakes that stop the wheels, but it's ultimately your tires that stop your car. Right, and, uh, right. And, and the analogy using the sneakers as a metaphor, I think teenagers get the fact when they're when the treads on their sneakers are worn down, they're slippery, they're dangerous. We want to, we want them to make the same connection about their tires. You mentioned you've been working on this program, I guess, for about three years. You've said, right. tell me about what's been the outcome, the impact as a result of your guys' involvement? Well, the most important thing is that we're really encouraged about is the fact, as I mentioned, all 50 states now, 34 of them have already integrated. The rest will have committed to integrating um, basic tire maintenance and tire tips into the education program. And for for us, that's very important. But this next step, and with this program, the uh, the street tread contest is really getting kids to demonstrate through social media how they're acting on that. And uh, for us at Michelin, that's really important. You know, I was thinking too, um, I saw somebody over the weekend and they said, oh yeah, my daughter's just getting ready to drive, you know, hit mm-hmm. that age. And I said, she's a city kid. I'm like, is she that interested? And she's like, not so much. But it's interesting, a younger generation who's dealing with the sharing economy and so on. I'm curious how this is also about, you know, kind of engaging a younger 
potentially consumer. Absolutely. That will right. be a consumer later on. That Because there's so much thinking about Uber and, like I said, sharing cars and all that good stuff. But you've got to think about, right, who might be your future no, consumer. No, you're right. Uh, you know, for, for us, really, the genesis for 130 years, we're a company that's been very focused on safety and innovation yeah. and, and trying to make mobility safer. That's what Michelin's all about. At the same time, you're right. Uh, this is also a way to engage uh, this younger generation, help them help us spread the word, quite honestly, through social media that they do so effectively, and also introduce them to the brand. Um, you know, the younger generation, uh, when it, when they think, a lot of them are familiar with Michelin because of the Michelin Man. Some of them are familiar with Michelin because of the Michelin Red Guides and Restaurant Guides, right. although they don't make the connection between that and the tires. So uh, anything we can do to help try to make mobility safer and introduce people to the brand, we think is, is good for everybody. So... Again, what's the hashtag? It's hashtag street tread contest. And again, what, what teenagers can do over the summer, it starts today, runs through August the 1st, post a photo of, of checking their tread depth with a penny or checking their air pressure, post it uh, via uh, Instagram, via uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, to that hashtag. And, and they're, they're entering the contest then, and only 100 pair of shoes will be will be given to, uh, so these are ultra-limited edition uh, ah, van shoes. Yeah, these right. are not available for sale. You have to participate. Pretty cool sneakers, no doubt about it. Um, Scott Clark, thank you. Thank you for having me. Chairman and President of Michelin North America, based in Greenville. I know how you feel about all this Christmas business. I never get what I really want. What is it you want? Real estate. So we want to talk a little bit about real estate. We also want to talk a little bit about uh, getting yourself ready for the next market crash, whatever market you may be playing in or whatever asset class. Our next guest has some thoughts on this. Ari Rastegar is founder and CEO of the Dallas-based private equity firm Rastegar Equity Partners, and he joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to be with you again. We Hi, talked, Carol. We were in Dallas, and we talked about ESG investing and a lot of good stuff. Um, this is an interesting environment. Before we got going, I said, you know, I feel like I can talk to people who think there's more room to run <laughs> in terms of financial assets. And then others who said, get ready. Here it comes. You wrote a piece basically saying we should think about the next market crash. You know, it's it's funny. You're, you're kind of torn, right? Because you, you look at the economy. Um, things look like they're going well, you know, and from a real estate side, I think a lot of people are waiting for cap rates, you know, to expand, you know, right now there's over $260 billion that's been raised for real estate, private equity, just kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting for a home. And if you think about it, that's almost a trillion dollars of buying power. So when you look at that, you think, okay, do we wait for cap rates to expand to find opportunity? You know, in our opinion, it's all about NOI growth, right? So if the economy looks like it's doing well, NOI is going to grow, right. which is great. The other side of the discussion is statistically you're overdue for a market crash. So, you know, on average, you know, corrections happen, you know, every five years, it's been 10. So do you, are you nervous or, you know, which way do you look at it? Well, I just came back from uh, an event on the West Coast, the Eisner um, real estate uh, event, global real estate uh, conference. And there were a lot of individuals who said, you know, we're having a lot of discussions that whether or not we've hit a top. You know, you are in Dallas, but you're working in, you know, I don't know, a dozen states or so um, all across the country. What are you seeing? You know, look, I think there's no question that, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're at the top of the cycle in a, in a lot of different ways. So, you know. Top of the real estate cycle. Sure. Top of the real estate cycle. And, you know, a lot of people know that there's a ton of money that's, you know, fighting for very few opportunities, it feels like. You know, that doesn't mean there's not opportunity in micro markets and different areas 
that there is this little state down south called Texas um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that or that, might think it's its own little country. Yeah, it's you know I'm born and raised in Texas, so <laughs> I have lots of wonderful relatives there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so you got to really work harder. There's definitely deals. There's definitely things you can find, but it feels like it's more in like the middle market. You know, where you're seeing those opportunities, right? So. It's kind of like, you know, it's like Las Vegas. Recently, I went there. My wife and I were there. And um, it feels like there's so much Vegas, not enough people. Yeah. You know, and it kind of huh. feels like that here. There's like a lot, all this money, you know, rates are low, but there's not enough deals, it kind of feels like. What about the rise in oil prices? Is that having an impact on, on, Del- on Texas overall? You know, Texas is a much more diverse economy than it was years and years ago. So it's not as correlated as it once was, you know, yeah. certainly it's it's something something to look at, um, but it's not nearly um, as big of an issue as it used to be. All right, so the higher prices, you don't automatically see something yeah, dramatic it's, change. It's, yeah, exactly. Let's go back to what we started with, and like I said, you shared with us some research you wrote, the market crash cycle. So, I mean. You said to me I could make the argument for either side. <laughs> so is it just a case of duration in terms of this economic cycle and this market cycle that at some point sure. things have to go down? Maybe they only go down really quickly. We've seen certainly a lot of, lot more normal volatility back in the marketplace. No, we have. I mean, if you look back in the last 33 market corrections, statistically they happen on average every five years. So when you look at that, we're you know clearly um, – you know, past due statistically. So we're in the second, arguably the third longest bull market ever. So, but if you look at the fundamentals, you know, things still look really, still look really good. And with the recent, you know, tax reform, you know, there's a lot more money that's going. So when you look at, um, you know, you look at earnings, still looks pretty good. So I think it's going to really take into 2019 to really see, you know, what, you know, the balance sheets really look like. Um, but no doubt, you know, corrections as a general rule are followed by exuberance. And we've seen a lot of irrational exuberance in the markets. Um, but the markets know. get beat up more more rapidly, if you will, now. I feel like if there's some news that doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of gyrations, right? Yeah. So Sam Zell was on Bloomberg, you know, recently, and, you know, that was kind of the phraseology he used. Like, you're seeing these gyrations go up and down, and he made a point that, you know, we've heard a lot, is that the, you know, real estate markets are priced to perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he should know. He sold <laughs> just as things started to come undone, or just before, right? He sold out. A- absolutely. But, you know, like I said, there's there's always ways, you know, to find deals, but, you know, situational distress, there's unique situations. What about when it comes to real estate investments? I mean, are there certain kinds of properties that tend to kind of ride the waves? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, before we could look at the markets from a more macro perspective. And now you really have to find the niche markets. You have to be you know, a little bit more specific in what you're looking at. Like for an extreme example, looking at, you know, real estate in Austin, Texas or Dallas, Texas versus New York City. I mean, it might as well be the difference between, you know, a, a truck and an apple. I mean, it's like they're, they're just, you know, right. just, there's not the same thing. So, you know, you really have to be much more specialized. You have to be much more deal specific, case by case basis, and really understand those micro economies to really assess the viability. What, what kind of deals do you see coming in, real estate deals coming into the marketplace? You know, we, we look at a lot. You know, I, uh-huh. I'm kind of a nerd like that, so I kind of like to see – you know, as much as I possibly can. Um, but we're seeing some opportunities in vintage apartments. Um, and we find well, we've looked at self-storage for years. Um, you know, cap rates have compressed pretty dramatically in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, on its face, I like it. You know, it's kind of a shed that gets the rents of Class B Multi, which yeah. is kind of nice. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, there's highly accretive financing available still. Um, you know, you're underwriting, you know, interest rates rising, but still, 
you know, low interest rate environment, you know, in 2009, you know, rates were low, but there wasn't much money. Right. So it's, you know, we're kind of in a interesting, interesting situation. Time, right? Yeah. Um, nice to check in with you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Carol. Thanks for having me. You bet. Ari Rastigar, founder, chief executive officer at Rastigar Equity Partners, a private equity firm dealing in real estate based in Dallas in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Monday. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets and this is Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, we saw a lot of companies announcing deals on this Monday. Athena Health uh, surging as Elliott seeks a, a billion dollar, six and a half billion dollar takeover almost. Takeda said to be near a deal to buy Shire and Nestle betting about seven billion on Starbucks. Just some of the stuff going on on this Monday. Let's talk to Eric Gordon, professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, based typically in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but uh, in our 991 studio in the nation's capital on this Monday. Um, professor Gordon, nice to have you here with us. Uh, a lot of deal flow. Um, among the deals that were announced, what do you find interesting? You know, I find the coffee deal. I actually, I like them all because I'm a deal junkie, <laughs> yes. as you know. But I, the coffee deal fascinates me. Why? Well, you you have you have sort of two number ones. So Starbucks has got to be sort of the number one, you know, liked brand, cool brand, powerful brand. And you have Nestle, which is actually the global leader. It's globally the number one in coffee sales. You would never guess that if you live in the in, in America. Uh, but you have two number ones combining, and you know. So you have to ask yourself, why is that? And why is that? Well, you know, I it, it's uh, you, you can see on the Nestle side, uh, they have decided that coffee is going to be one of their focus businesses. Nestle's been attacked for being sprawling, a big sprawling mess. So they've said we're going to focus on a few businesses. Coffee's one of them, but coffee is not growing as fast enough for them as they need it to grow. They are uh, they're behind brands like Nescafe. Uh, I'll try to stay awake even while I say the word <laughs> and, and and some other you know some other cool brands that are very small, but they need something to rev up that business and and this is an interesting deal because they 're not acquiring the company they 're paying seven billion dollars <sighs> for the rights to distribute Starbucks, which makes you think. That's got to be a pretty powerful brand if you can get $7 billion from somebody and all you give them is the rights to distribute your coffee. Right. It's pretty interesting. And, I, you know, at first I was like, I don't get this. And then I realized, you know, Starbucks, you know, they're not necessarily in the market of distribution, right? And by doing this, Nestle already has the distribution infrastructure. So, Right, they're able to get the Starbucks product out to everybody globally pretty quickly. So they have that going on. And I thought, you know, even for Nestle, this allows them to maybe tap into potentially a younger audience, a younger consumer. Yeah, you know, I think both of those are exactly right. I mean, Nestle is the brand that my mother likes. Um, it's the brand that my son Nescafe. It's the brand my son never heard of. And I think you're right about Starbucks. You know, they're really good at stores that are fun, you know, the coffee cafes. And and they've got a lot on their plate. They're, they're going to try to roll them out in China, where they could probably roll out about two zillion of them. And, and they also have a, a more expensive store, if, if you had 
didn't think Starbucks was already expensive enough for your coffee taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to roll out in the U.S. a more expensive thing. So, you know, I think for them, it's it's pretty smart. It's focus. We're going to focus on what made us famous, what we're really good at. We're not so good at distribution, especially around the world. Nestle's great at it. Yeah, and if I look at Starbucks revenues, I mean, the bulk of their businesses in the Americas, uh, the growth, though, the most dramatic growth over the past three years is the China, Asia, Pacific. So, you know, I wonder, you know, by getting their brand out, does that also then, you know, make it easier for them to basically, you know, create outlets, uh, a Starbucks on every, you know, corner in China or throughout the Asia Pacific? And, you know, maybe that's a way of kind of opening up uh, the door that way. Hey, um, Athena and Elliot. What's up with that? <laughs> so this is an interesting one. This is, you know, this is not another merger. This is, you know, Elliot Paul Singer, famous yeah. activist guy who usually buys a little bit of stock um, and then contacts management with helpful suggestions. Um, in this case, uh, you know, we bought some stock, uh, I guess, about a year ago now. Uh, and he's made some helpful suggestions, and I guess they're not implementing them quickly enough. So he said, okay, instead of doing a proxy fight and battling with management, I'll just buy the company, which I guess works if you have $7 billion on hand. So this is a, this is a really odd one. This, is a, this isn't a merger. This is like uh, you know, a, an activist hedge fund guy, and you have to – this is like you catch the rabbit, and then what do you do with it if, if, he, if he acquires the company – now, instead of helping or irritating the management, depends on who you are, um, he is going to be the management. He's going to have to run the place. So this, this is another another interesting one for today. And I will say one analyst that uh, we talked to over here at Bloomberg News, over at RBC Capital Markets, George Hill, he said that the offer price is, is low. He expects it will ultimately be rejected by the board. So whether or not it goes up more or other people come in, um, we'll have to see. Just quickly, 20 seconds, be quick if you could. All this M&A environment, does it just say that things are there are kind of peaking out, if you will, for companies? Yeah, I think companies are having trouble finding growth, and I think they're having trouble finding efficiency. So sometimes they're selling off divisions that don't fit. All right, going to leave it there. Always fun to check in with you. Eric Gordon, he's professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, But we find uh, Professor Gordon in our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. today. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is the time for the drive to the close. Jeff Kruppelman is Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. He joins us on the phone from Cincinnati. Uh, Jeff, lots of guessing about what happens next for the financial markets. Is it the end of uh, the bull run or not? Where do you weigh in? So, no, we would say, you know, it's definitely not the end of the bull run, but it's not going to be real fun, I don't think, for the next couple months as we kind of push through towards the the midterm elections. And in fact, the monthly commentary that I provided this month is entitled Hunker Down and Focus on the Facts. 
so what gives us confidence and uh, you know just uh, kind of comfort is the facts continue to be really good, but I think the sentiment is uh, a little choppy in here, and I don't think that that's going to change uh, until we push through some of these headline kind of worries that are out there. What facts in particular do you find most um, comforting? So, you know, just this earnings season, I mean, we're in the middle of something that is just fabulous. I mean, this this earnings season, I think you're going to see at the end of the day, earnings may be up 25% for the quarter. And uh, it, the thing that I think is very impressive is we're seeing organic growth here. I mean, revenues are going to be up close to 10%, and we haven't seen that for years. So when you look at the earnings data and then the economic backdrop that underlies that with uh, the GDP number, uh, with things like employment that was just reported on Friday, continued growth in uh, payroll jobs, and you have a little pickup with regard to uh, wage growth, not, not enough, though, that would make you worried about inflationary pressures. You're seeing capital spending actually pick up. You're, as these companies are reporting, they're saying, hey, we're going to boost our capital spending, our business investment, 20 30% for the year. And you haven't seen that in quite some time. So the, the news and the facts are actually quite good while we want to kind of wring our hands and worry about tariffs and trade and, you know, what about rates that are backing up and, and that kind of stuff. And I think that that's, that's what is coloring the market right now. What about, though, kind of the – I feel like all of a sudden a rush of M&A activity and, and, you know, in talking with various individuals, say that, you know, this is just companies searching for some kind of growth because they've squeezed everything they can out of in terms of costs and so on and so forth uh, or have gotten as much as they can out of their core business and now they've got to kind of buy uh, growth going forward. I've heard, you know, people say, cite the M&A rush of deals as a sign that, that we could be in a peak. I was recently at a real estate event out on the West Coast, and a lot of people were talking about whether or not this is a top of the cycle. So, you know, we do hear more conversations like that from people who are in an industry, know their industry, and are wondering if kind of the best has kind of happened for a while. You know, again, I would say it's a mosaic. And so we look for a number of factors that would kind of Mark, market froth and that kind of thing. And so you do look at M&A activity and you look at IPO activity and you look at flows into equities and, and all these various factors. And, you know, I would say that with regard to how companies are spending cash, M&A is part of it and, and deals are, are, are part of this. But you've, as I just mentioned, you've got to pick up in capital investment that you haven't seen in some time, which would speak to the confidence that demand is still out there. So that's a real positive. And then these other signs that would be typical signs of top, massive flows into equities. You, you, you know, you're just not seeing that kind of thing. Credit spreads that are moving out that would suggest perhaps that the economy is rolling over. Not there. So if, if we would list 12 factors that you might see that would mark a market top, you might tick off half of one. <laughs> So, well, but what about rising costs of things? We've been talking about oil prices going up and, and certainly inflation not out of control, but we are seeing, you know, a rise in prices. And there is that concern of what that will do to company costs and what that will do to their profit margins, right? You know, if everything's going up, you know, how long can a U.S. company keep sending kind of dollars that they get in sales to the bottom line? Sure. So, again, these are all the, the wall of worry 
items that you know you want to look at on on the. But is it a wall uh, of worry, Jeff, or is it actuality and reality? If we're starting to see higher costs of things. Well, you know that you have a trend that you know the the easy days and the solid days of 2016 and 17 are behind us. That's when we were very positive and thought you'd get double-digit type of returns on the market. I do think these factors that you mentioned put a cap or a lid on it, and that's why we're looking for more subdued returns this year for equities, somewhere in the order of you know six to eight percent, as opposed to last year when we were indeed calling for 18 to 20 percent. We actually were were public with. Um, you know, calling for very nice returns. So, uh, rising rates. You're 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 right. That probably is going to get you more multiple compression than it is going to be really impacting the income statement. So we don't see margins as um, you know absolutely rolling over at this point. They're probably closer to peak levels. But wage inflation doesn't start to really crimp margins until you push through 4% year-over-year uh, increases in, in wages. And we're not close to that. We're at 2.6%, 2.7%. So you, know, you actually see that aid the, the top line, and that gives you leverage up to a point before margins start really getting crimped. And that tends to be when wages are, are moving up at a 4% pace, not 2.6%. Just got about 25 seconds left. Uh, consumer discretionary, uh, that's an area you like right now. It is. It is, and it's an, an area that actually um, pockets of it have stalled a little bit. Um, the overall sectors perform uh, pretty darn good, and even some of the retailers have picked up in the last couple of months. But experience, we think, is just uh, very solid, and when you have these positive employment trends, uh, yep. things like Carnival Cruise, right. Las Vegas Sands, so on and so forth, we like a lot. All right. Jeff Crumbleman, thank you. Chief Investment Strategist, Director of Equities over at Mariner Wealth Advisors on the phone from Cincinnati. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 